0: Well, welcome to part four of I Am Strong, and today we're gonna talk about the times in life when what you hope for and what happens are two totally different things. If you're like me and you filled out a March Madness NCAA basketball bracket, (laughs) you know what it's like for what you hope for and what happens to be two totally different things. I also know in this room that later today when Butler and Purdue play, yeah, inevitably, unless we have the first tie in March Madness, some of us, what we hope for and what happens will be two different things, but that's going to be a blast. I got to tell you a funny story about when you don't get what you hope for. When I was 15, I was working as a janitor for a summer job, and I had a handful of buddies. We all worked as janitors at the same place. I grew up in Michigan, and you know it was like winter almost all year. So it was July, and it was finally warm. And we had worked, we had done our, our job and, you know, changing trash cans and waxing floors. And we didn't have much else to do in this little town that I grew up in. so we decided we were going to go around town with our super soaker squirt guns. And my buddy Donnie he had just turned 16 and gotten this old Oldsmobile four-door sedan. And we decided we'd all load up with our super soakers and we'd drive around town and do some super soaker drive-bys. So we got four of us, 15 or 16-year-olds in the back seat of the car, three in the front seat of the car, and my buddy Nate had just gotten this super soaker that was like a cannon. And it was one where you'd pump it like 50 times and then you'd pull the trigger once and it would just blast out this like fire department quantity of water. So for the most part, we're just hitting cars that have their windows up, mailboxes. It's just water. It's pretty innocent. But our buddy, Nate, who's got the huge cannon blaster, he keeps aiming for people who have their windows down. (laughs) And we're all like, Nate, we're going to get in trouble, you know. Well, we're stopped at a stoplight, and up ahead of us on the right is this lowered Chevy Monte Carlo with rims and the bass is thumping and the windows down. And we all hear Nate make this kind of grunting noise. He like, sees it and he's like, ha ha ha. And in like slow motion we see this blast of water come out, goes up two or three cars ahead of us, goes straight in through the open window and just covers the dashboard of this Monte Carlo. Next thing we see is smoke from the tires. The guy slams it in reverse. He comes back next to us. And it's at this moment that we realize that we're stuck in traffic. There's like a car behind us. There's a car in front of us. And you have permission to laugh at my friend Nate because he survived all of what I'm about to describe. Okay. So this guy gets out of his car, starts coming toward Nate, and Nate starts fiddling with the power window. And it's at this moment that Nate realizes that window on Donnie's car doesn't really work. You know when you have an old power window and it's kind of like... "Mm." (laughs) So Nate's fiddling with the switch and this guy comes up. There's a car in front of us. We can't go anywhere. And this guy just starts punching Nate in the face through the window. Donnie, the driver, is sitting there and he's just like... Pretty soon the traffic clears out and so all four of us in the back were like, Donnie, drive, go, go, go. So Donnie, Donnie finally floors it and we, we get out of there. Nate's face survived. I think he did what his pants though. <laughs> so which was probably the ultimate justice considering what he was going around town doing. So sometimes what you hope for and what happens are two totally different things and sometimes it's funny. Other times it's not as funny. I'll tell you a story about a time when what my wife and I hoped for and what happened uh, was devastatingly different. In 2009, we had just been married for a little while when my wife whispered to me, I'm pregnant. And at first, as a really young guy, I thought, oh my goodness, I was just overwhelmed with fear. But the days went along and the weeks went along and that fear turned into excitement. You know, we were young, we were just figuring out life, figuring out our marriage, but all of a sudden, we had in this little child growing in my wife's womb, this future together, and this hope together, and our excitement grew, and our love grew, and then one day, I was at my newspaper office, working as a newspaper reporter, and I got a call from Mel. She said she was experiencing severe pain and severe cramps, and so I rushed home, and when I got home, Mel was balled up on the couch just in physical agony. And I sat with her for the next few hours, and many of you have been in this situation where for a spouse or a child, everything in you just wishes you could take their pain away. Everything in you wishes you could take their pain away physically. Everything in you wishes you could take their pain away emotionally. And eventually that life that was inside of Mel left. And it was one of those bizarre moments in life because we were in Scottsdale, Arizona where it doesn't often rain or thunderstorm and it starts to rain and thunderstorm. And then the electricity goes out. So I get these little candles and I'm just trying to comfort my wife. I had decided when I drove home, I'm gonna be strong. I'm gonna be like a rock emotionally. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just be stable so that she can cry or do whatever she needs to do. And I was sure I wouldn't cry. I don't cry very often. I'm not like a Hallmark movie crier. But I'll never forget later going into the bathroom of our house and holding that little shell of what was going to be our first son or daughter on earth, and and seeing where the little head was forming, and seeing where the little eyes were forming, and all of a sudden these just heaving sobs took over my body, and I closed the bathroom door because I didn't want my wife to hear me crying like that. It was a moment of suffering for my wife and for me, a moment of suffering in the moment and a moment where the future becomes uncertain. And I want to talk with you today about that emotion in your life. Maybe you're in that kind of suffering right now, or maybe you have been recently. And today we're wrestling with a very real question, and it's this, what can you do when your present suffering feels hopeless? What can you do when your present suffering feels endless? Maybe you're here and you've got a chronic physical health condition or the loss of a relationship. Something in your life has changed and it's irreparable and in your suffering, it just seems like it's never gonna end. It seems like there's no hope and it feels that way. What can you do when your suffering feels hopeless or endless? Well, as we're doing in this series, we're looking into the Word of God to find really meaningful answers for these questions. We're looking into the Word of God, and with this series, we're refusing to settle for little Christian cliches. We're refusing to settle for a little bumper sticker, smile and pretend everything's okay answers. We're digging deep into the Word of God. And I want to share with you today an answer that in my sufferings, plural, in life, That moment I described, as well as my physical condition that I've described with you all in this series, this text that I'm about to share with you, these promises from God, have completely changed my perspective on suffering, and they give an answer that you might not expect to this question. So let's look at Romans chapter 8 together, and let's hear God's answer to your present sufferings. Here's what he says, now if we are children... If we are children, then we are heirs. Why why does it say children? Well, that's important for us to, to define. Because this passage, these promises that we're about to look at, these are promises that are given to everyone who's placed their faith in Christ. The moment you place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God says you're adopted into the family of God and you become his son or his daughter, so you need to know today that you've done that, and if you haven't done that before, it's a movement of the heart that you can begin right now, of saying, God, I know I need your help. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. Please be my savior. The moment you do that, you're adopted into God's family, you become his child. So these promises are for God's children. It says, if you're God's child, if you've placed your faith in Christ, well, you're an heir. What is an heir? Well, an heir is a person who gets an inheritance. If you're an heir and your grandma or your parents pass away and they leave you an inheritance, sometimes in this world it's very little, sometimes it's a lot. And God says, if you're a child of God, you're an heir. You're an heir of God. So the inheritance that you have coming for you is an immense fortune and you're co-heirs with Christ. Now look at the second half of the verse. You have this certain future of an inheritance if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. In other words, Jesus who will be glorified for eternity as the king of kings, he went through suffering in this world. Next week we're going to visit the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to physically in this service take ourselves mentally there. And, and put ourselves in Jesus' position when he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane and he went through intense emotional suffering. Then he went to a hill called Golgotha where he was crucified and he went through intense physical and spiritual suffering. And it was through the sufferings that lead to his glory. And now for those of us who trust in him, we will in this world go through some sufferings on our way to share in his glory. I like to remind myself when I'm reading the next verse that this is written by God through a person, Paul the Apostle, who knows suffering. We've learned in this series that Paul the Apostle had a thorn in his flesh. It was a chronic physical sickness that brought excruciating pain. And here's what Paul's gonna write in verse 18. He says, now I consider that our present sufferings, plural, so if you were to take all the suffering in your life, and all the suffering of your immediate family, and if you were to add it to all of my suffering in my immediate family, and if we were to add that across this entire room, across this church with thousands of people, across church history with millions of people, Paul says that if you add up all of our sufferings and you put it on one side of the scale, that's a lot of suffering. I mean, there's Christians who've been sold as slaves. There's Christians who've been fed to lions. There's Christians who've frozen to death because of their faith in the gulags in Siberia under the Soviet Union. All that suffering together, God never makes light of it, but here's what he says. You add it all up, and it's not worth comparing with the future state that we'll have, the glory that will be revealed in us. So if you think of a scale and two things that weigh out, we'd be tempted to say all the sufferings of this life will be worth it because of what's coming. But what God says is all the sufferings of this life, they're not even worth comparing with what God has planned for you. Really interesting, the first time I read this verse, I misread it because my brain filled in here the word to, that God's glory would be revealed to us. Because we know in heaven we are going to see God's glory. And that sounds like just some Christianese churchy word. But what God's glory is is his splendor, his beauty, his awe. So the God who made the Grand Canyon, the God who made sunrises and sunsets, the God who made sexuality, the God who made every kind of beauty that you've ever seen or enjoyed or been attracted to, that God, you've only seen little, little shadows of his glory in this life and in the life to come you will, it will be revealed the fullness of his glory. Ecstasy and joy beyond what we can imagine. But what's so interesting is that this passage of scripture says that God's glory, his wonder, his beauty, his awe will not only be revealed to us, but because we've been adopted, because of what Christ did on the cross, this verse says his glory will be revealed in us. In other words, in the life to come, it's not that you're just going to witness and see this amazing state of what God actually is apart from sin and evil. You're going to experience it. Now, there's only one true God, but his glory will be in us. Let's keep reading this amazing promise. Right now, verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We've learned in this series that God created a perfect world where there was no sin, there was no death, there was no cancer or rape or divorce or injustice or slavery. We've learned that an evil adversary, Satan, came into this world and infected it with evil. We've learned that because of that infection, the very tectonic plates are broken and so we have earthquakes. The very weather patterns are broken and so we have natural disasters. Our very DNA is infected and so we have cancer. Our relationships, our nature is infected and so we have murder, we have hatred, we have jealousy. And this passage says that it's almost like the planet itself knows it's broken and it's waiting for Christ to return and set everything right. In fact, look at the next verse. We know that the whole creation has been groaning As in the pains of childbirth, it's almost like the earth is groaning, like God, come back and set things right. God, come back and make things the way they're supposed to be. Creation is groaning, waiting for God to set things right. Not only that, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? That means when you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, not only are you adopted into the family of God, but the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. And when the Spirit of God lives inside of you, the nature of God is within you. Now you can fan it into flame or you can stifle it. But as you fan it into flame, you will start to be filled with God's joy, with his peace, with his patience and kindness, with his love, in ways that defy your own nature or disposition. You'll meet someone that doesn't appeal to your disposition but you'll be able to love them because the spirit of God is in you. Now here's the thing, when the spirit of God is in you, what grieves God will also grieve you. And so when you see racism, you'll be grieved. When you see injustice, you'll be grieved. And this verse says that we who have the Holy Spirit in us, there are days, yes, we have joy, we have peace, but there are days when we see what's happening in the world. When we see an innocent person murdered, When we see someone who steps out as a protector killed by someone who's evil and the spirit inside of us groans and says, God, come set things right. Come and fix this broken planet and these broken people. The verse continues, we groan inwardly as we await our adoption. We eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And the text continues, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? In other words, this is a future hope. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. What can you do when your present suffering is unbearable? What can you do when your present suffering seems hopeless Here's what you can do. You can remind yourself of this. Someday, my present suffering will be a distant memory. Someday, what I'm going through right now will be a speck in the rearview mirror. And you may be in a situation where, because that suffering is a loved one who is physically taken away, or the emotional tear is so severe, there's no hope to restore the relationship. You might be in a suffering so big that right now it just defines everything around you and you can't imagine ever being out of that suffering. But what we're going to learn in this passage is that someday, because of your faith in Christ, all the pain, all the agony will be a distant memory. There's three anchors I want to give you today to secure a suffering soul. Three anchors that we're going to get right out of this passage in Romans 8. And here's the very first one. I will be rescued out of my suffering. I will be rescued out of my suffering. Now, earlier in this series, in week two, we introduced this idea that God is going to rescue us out of our present suffering. But today, I want to explain that in another layer of it. I want to give you an emotional and spiritual truth that has just changed my perspective on suffering. In fact, if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write down these three words. Already, not yet. Already, not yet. And you put dashes between them because here's what we saw in the passage we just read. It said, we're already God's children, but our adoption is not yet completed. Now, I understand that in a new way because our youngest, we recently adopted from Haiti. It took three years and tens of thousands of dollars. And for three years, she was already our daughter, but she was not yet home. And you're going to find as we go through this passage that this is the already not yet tension we live in right now. We're already God's children, but we're not yet home. We're already heirs to Christ's fortune, but we have not yet inherited it. In fact, I remember a guy I met when I was right out of college, and he was still in college, and he was an heir to a sizable fortune. He was an heir to $20 million. Poor guy, right? (laughs) Poor guy, heir to $20 million. But here's the way his parents set it up. He would not get his inheritance until he turned 25 so all through high school all through college he's living a fairly normal life I mean the rest of us never had pity on him okay but he still had normal breakups he still had normal hard days he ate ramen noodles like the rest of us but he knew all along that when he turned 25 that day 20 million dollars would be his And so it kind of made life a little bit easier. (laughs) You realize that that's what an already not yet is. He was already an heir. That was set up by his parents before he was born. But he was not yet the inheritor of it. He was already an heir, but he was not yet in possession of it. And if you really want to understand as a mature follower of Christ, the sufferings of this world... Already not yet is is the answer to so much of our suffering. You already are an heir to Christ's fortune, but you're not yet in possession of it. In fact, we saw that in our text. Verse 17 said, we are co-heirs, heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But we're in this season of suffering. If you want to call his high school and college years until he turned 25 suffering... I don't know if it was suffering, but he was in the not yet of the already not yet, and that's where we are right now. Look at verse 17, the second half. We have that inheritance if indeed we share in his sufferings. Just like he went through Gethsemane, just like he went to Golgotha, we will go through sufferings in this world as we follow him. And when you go through those, it doesn't mean he's abandoned you. It means you're in the not yet of the already not yet tension. I want to tell you, a more vivid story that illustrates this already, not yet, of your position with God. It's the true story of a guy named Louis Zamperini. Here's a picture of Louis when he was running track and field in the late 1930s. Louis ran in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, Germany, right before World War II. Louis grew up in Southern California. He was a world famous track star and in the late 1930s he was practicing. He was so excited for the next Olympics when World War II broke out. Louis would never run in another Olympics because the next Olympics wouldn't happen. Louis got drafted into the army and before he knew it he was flying in a B-24 bomber over the Pacific Ocean in this incredible struggle of World War II. The plane that Louis was in got shot down and crashed into the Pacific Ocean. This is all a true story. Louis was one of three guys who survived the initial plane crash. They find a life raft in the plane and they're floating in the Pacific Ocean on this life raft. Well, one of the guys dies from his injuries, the other guy loses his mind, and Louis is stranded at sea without fresh water to drink, without food for 30 some days. Sharks literally start to encircle this raft and start to push up against it. Then Louis sees an airplane. He thinks, rescue. Well, it turned out it was a Japanese plane. So Louis gets taken to a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Now, if you know much about World War II, these Japanese prison camps were horrific. Most of them were in tropical climates where there were a lot of mosquitoes, a lot of disease, just swampy type climates. And Louis would live the next three years of his life as a prisoner in a Japanese prison camp. Now it started off rough because every camp he went to, the guards knew that he was a famous athlete. And so a lot of the guards, in fact, the camp that Louis spent the most time at in Japan, there was this guard named the bird. And the bird had this belt with a brass belt buckle and he would pull it off and he would whip Louis in the face. Uh, It's almost, I don't wanna say impossible, but very difficult for us as modern Americans to comprehend what these guys went through in these prison camps. I wanna show you a picture, if you have a weak stomach, you might look away, but this is a picture of an American, and Australian, when the war ended and they were delivered from the prison camp. See, most of the guys died of disease, but the ones who lived were this emaciated, they were this starving. Because the Japanese guards didn't take good care of the American prisoners to begin with. But as the war dragged on, Japan completely was running out of food for its own people. Japan no longer had food for its own soldiers. But refused to admit defeat for so long. Refused to surrender. And so there was literally no food for these American prisoners of war. Now I want to take you into a moment in Louis' life that seems unbelievable. It was the moment when his unbearable suffering got worse and worse and worse and his suffering seemed endless, his suffering seemed hopeless. For about three years, Louis kept up a good attitude. He would imagine his mom's home cooking, he would tell stories to the other prisoners, and as he saw them die from disease and from beatings, he somehow kept a positive attitude. He continued to dream that one day the war would be over, he would get his health back, he would train for the Olympics, and, and he just continued to have this forward vision. But then one day, Louis's on a worker team. These guys were like working slaves, essentially. And one of the guards hits Louis in the leg with the butt of a rifle, and Louis hears the tendons and he feels them rip in his knee and down through his calf. And that day, Louis knew even if the war ended, he's never going to run in the Olympics again. And with that mental change, he started to lose his hope and as his body is this emaciated one day he wakes up there was this jungle disease called beriberi and the way the guys would know that if they had beriberi if you pressed your hand into your arm and you took it away and the indent stayed there you had beriberi and that meant you would die in about 2 weeks and louis had seen a lot of his friends die from this well he's laying there in bed his leg is shot he's in an emaciated body like this he presses his hand And the indentation stays there, and he knows, I'm going to die in two weeks. And he loses all hope. Now, here's the unbelievable reality of that moment in Louis Zamperini's true story, real life. At that moment, Japan had just surrendered to the United States. Sadly, the U.S. had to drop the atomic bombs. Japan surrenders. But I want to take you into a moment. I want you to understand the already not yet tension of human history and of our story. And it's this. Japan surrendered, but the Japanese guards did not tell the inmates that it was over. The Japanese guards continued to act like Japan had not surrendered. So for seven days, Louis and these other inmates, they were actually victors. They had won but they were still living in enemy territory. They were victors, but the enemy was so deceptive that the enemy continued to lie to them. Now here's the thing, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, the sadistic prison guards of humanity, the demons, Satan and all of his hosts, they know that they're defeated. But just like those sadistic prison guards, they will continue to lie to you and to your neighbors and say, you have to do what we say. You're under our control. And there will be times when we get whipped in the face by a brass belt buckle and we have to remind ourselves, I am a victor, but I'm still living in enemy territory. I'm a victor, but I'm still living in enemy territory. I warned you guys we were going deep today, okay? And and this is actually how scripture describes it. Hebrews talks about this. uh, Beginning in Hebrews 2 verse 14. It says, by his death, Christ destroyed the one who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And he did this so that he could free humanity who all our lives had been held in slavery by our fear of death. So Satan knows he's defeated. But look at verse 8 of Hebrews 2. It says, yet at present... We do not see everything subject to Christ. Okay, so there were seven real days where Louis and the other American and Australian and British prisoners, they truly were victors, but they couldn't see it yet. And those those evil guards were going to hold out and pretend they were in charge as long as they could. I remember I was reading Louis's story. I was studying suffering in scripture and I was going through some severe symptoms in my own medical condition when I realized I'm in an emaciated body in a prison shambles of a world where I'm a victor, but I'm still living in enemy territory. And all of a sudden the already not yet made sense in my suffering, and my prayer for you today is that it'll make sense in yours. And what does it mean? It means someday your present suffering will be a speck in the rearview mirror. Someday your present suffering will be a distant memory. Louis and those guys, when they finally gave up all hope and it looked like it was over, is when they were actually victors and they would soon be welcomed home as war heroes. They would go through parades and feasts and Louis would live a long, fruitful, productive life in comfort and in ease, so different from the prison that he was in. And that's the second anchor when you're going through suffering. You tell yourself, my suffering will end. My suffering will end. Now for Louis and those guys, as they survived in that prison camp, Just daily abuse, daily trauma, daily starvation, daily witnessing of friends passing away from disease. They only had one hope. Their hope wasn't that the prison food would get better. Their hope wasn't that the guards would get nicer. Their hope wasn't that suddenly the Japanese government would send in better doctors or any doctors. They had one hope and one hope alone and it was this, it was that a B 29 superfortress would show up in the sky. So, as they walked around the prison yard, they didn't just have their eyes down in the dirt. They're constantly scanning the horizon. They're constantly looking for the sun to glint off of the polished aluminum hull of one of these American made B 29 superfortresses. They're constantly listening with their ears for the thundering roar of these giant rotary engines that just shake the air because they know. That if America prevails, the way they'll know isn't that the guards are going to tell them. The way they'll know is that they'll see one of these birds in the sky. And so as they're going through the prison camp, they're always kind of scanning the horizon. They're always listening, and that day comes. Seven days after Japan had actually been defeated, and the guards continue to beat them and lie to them, these guys appear in the sky. And they hear the roar of those American airplane engines. And pretty soon these planes start to drop down packages with newspapers and magazines that say Japan is defeated and food and water. And these prisoners and their emaciated bodies, they start to form conga lines. No joke. And those evil sadistic prison guards run for the hills. And still, for additional days, These guys get supplies dropped down from above, but they're still in these starving bodies. Now they've got just enough food for the day and they're still waiting for the tanks to show up. Already victors, not yet home. If you've trusted in Christ, you're already a victor, but you're not yet home. And when your pain sensors scream, when your emotions are frayed, you remind yourself, I'm still in enemy territory, but my rescue is sure. My suffering will end. Second Corinthians 1 verse 10 puts it this way. Christ has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. I love this verse because this summarizes the already not yet that we're learning. He already has delivered us, that's past tense. He will deliver us, that's present and ongoing tense. And on this we've set our hope, when I can't look for a better report from the doctor, when I know the phone's not gonna ring with positive news, when the relationship can't be restored, when the person I love is gone and I can't bring them back, I set my hope on one thing, he will continue to deliver us. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He has started it. It's already in process, but it's not yet done and he's not going to give up on you. And just as much as Louis' suffering was so real and excruciating in the moment, yours is too, but just as real as Louis' deliverance was coming, even when he couldn't feel it, even when he couldn't see it, even when he couldn't believe it, your deliverance is coming you might be at a point where you say, I don't know if I can believe that. Those are the times where you just cry out, God, I believe, help my unbelief. God, the, the not yet of the already not yet tension, I, I just, God, I don't know. Set your hope. Hebrews puts it this way. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And you know, some of you, God brought you here today because you just needed to hear a brother say, just hang in there. Keep holding on. Keep grabbing. Keep scanning the horizon. Don't give up. The hope we profess is exactly playing out as we were told in scripture. In this world, we have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The rescue has already started, but it's not yet finished. And he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. He will deliver you and he will sustain you until then. And when the suffering is unbearable, when the suffering seems endless, you just cling to that hope. I wanna give you a third anchor to secure the suffering soul. And the third anchor is this. The third anchor is that my suffering will be eclipsed by future glory. My suffering will be eclipsed by future glory. I told you earlier when we mentioned the already not yet tension. About the three years during which Evie, my youngest daughter, was our daughter, but she was not yet home. Legally, we weren't allowed to bring her home. And for three years, we invested tens of thousands of dollars and just countless hours in doing everything we needed to do legally to be able to bring her home. And God says this to you as you await your home going. In Philippians chapter 3, he says that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. You see, when our sufferings are kind of low level, I've got the fever, I've got a little flu, I've, you know, little, little minor things. We can set our hope on smaller that my circumstances will get better. But when our suffering is severe, then it forces us to look up to the sky and eagerly await a savior who will take us to a kingdom where we have our true citizenship. So when Evie was born in Haiti, she was a citizen of Haiti. And for three years, she was already our daughter, but she was not yet home. And here's a picture of Evie on the plane when my wife and I were bringing her home. Here's a picture of me and Evie in the airport in Atlanta as we're walking to U.S. Customs and Immigration. And when we got to Customs and Immigration, you know, Evie walks on carpet for the first time. She feels air conditioning for the first time. She sees running water from a sink and drinking fountain for the first time. We get to Customs and Immigration and they take her little passport and they stamp it with a stamp that says she's now in the process of becoming a U.S. citizen. And Evie's past, the bullies at the orphanage who she would shy away from because she never knew if they were gonna hit her or take her food or take her toy, barefoot on dirt, it'll always be part of her story. But her citizenship now defines her future. And what you need to know is what you're going through right now, it is part of your story, but your citizenship in heaven, that defines your future. Yeah, here's a picture of Evie more recently just hanging out with, <laughs> with our family. Just yesterday morning I was hanging out with the kids and I was watching Evie run around and play. It's only been about a year, but already to her, that orphanage that used to be her all-encompassing reality. She couldn't see anything bigger than the walls of that walled-in orphanage with barbed wire rings at the top to keep certain people out. She couldn't see anything bigger than that. That's now a speck in her rearview mirror. It's now a distant memory. And the day is coming for you when in Christ's presence, your present suffering will be that small of a memory in your past. We eagerly await our rescue from above. Well, I wanna tell you a story as we summarize all of this, a story of a time when my wife was laying in a hospital bed, shrieking in agony. As a journalist and as a reporter, I had documented a lot of human suffering, but I had never seen someone I loved in so much pain. You see, my wife had a condition, she had a parasite. You know, a parasite is something that feeds off of its human host. And she had had this parasite for nine months, if you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) That's right, our oldest here on earth, Jack, uh, had fed on her for nine months. And she had decided that she wanted that birth to be all natural, no epidural, no pain medication. And the time came, and I'm sitting there next to her... And I just wanna say for all the men in the room, okay, women, first of all, we understand that you're tougher than us because of childbirth, okay? We just acknowledge that. But secondly, it's also traumatic for us, okay? (laughs) Watching this thing is traumatic because here's the thing, I have three older brothers, they never warn me about how life works. I just have to figure it all out. They never tell me, they never told me that when your first kid comes out, it does not look like a human. So literally there's this, this head that is gray and wrinkled and heads up for all you first time dads, be warned, it does not look like a human at first. It's com- it doesn't even look like the shape of a head. I was looking at the nurse and I was like, what's wrong? Something is wrong with this child. He said, that's the way they come out. Their heads are like jello when they come out. It's the weirdest thing and it smells disgusting. <laughs> oh, it does. It does. I mean, it is gross and it is smelly and it is ugly. And and I I watched as my wife gives birth to this parasite and then (laughs) I see her in the most pain and suffering I've ever seen her in in her life. And, And when it's all done and we're back home, she says, you know, I'm never doing that again. And I say, yeah, let's not. So can you imagine my surprise when a couple years later she says, I think I'm ready for another one. And I I remember thinking, why would a smart, educated woman (laughs) who has been through this trauma, why would she willingly invite this back upon herself? And here's the answer. The answer is this, because the lifelong joy of a child Eclipses the temporary suffering of childbirth. Now, does that make light or demean the suffering of childbirth? No way. It is real. But the lifelong joy, it doesn't just make it worth it. It's not like they're equal, it eclipses it. It's bigger, it's better. And here's what God says to you today in your present suffering. He does not demean it. He does not make light of it. It is real and it is smelly and it is nasty and it is painful. But He says your present suffering will be eclipsed by future glory. And you can't understand it now, but the future glory is so big that you're going to get there and you're not even going to compare it to the speck in the rearview mirror of the suffering that you're in right now. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 16 he said you will grieve in this world you're gonna if you're not in the suffering right now anchor these truths down into your heart because in this world you will have trouble it is a prison camp there are sadistic spiritual rulers called demons there will be suffering in this life but your grief will turn to joy a woman giving birth has pain because her time has come these are Jesus words and he says this but when her baby is born She forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now Jesus speaks these words to you in your suffering. And he says, so it is with you. Right now is your time of suffering. Right now is the birth pains. Right now is the agony. Right now is the worst it will be for you in all of eternity. But Jesus says, I will see you again. And you will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away. So you can summarize it like this, in Christ I will be made so much better that I won't even compare my present sufferings to my future joy. God gives us these pictures to help us understand the already not yet tension. He gives us the picture of childbirth so we can understand that excruciating suffering can lead to lifelong joy and the lifelong suffering of our time on earth will lead to eternal joy in the presence of God. You talk about a swing of emotions. I'll never forget after witnessing my wife in that excruciating pain. I'll never forget the doctor taking that little gray smelly parasite (laughs) and setting him on my wife's chest. And in a moment, the most vivid, severe emotions flipped and she's overwhelmed with tears of joy. And I'm watching her hold this little guy and I'm watching her cry. And that overwhelming joy is a glimpse. It's a small picture of the joy that will be yours when Christ bursts through the clouds. When the not yet is done and it's just already. When the birth pains of this world are forever over and we are forever delivered, forever rescued. Not only out of the pains of this world but into oceans of pleasure and joy and the presence of God around us and the glory of God even within us in ways that we just can't even understand now. So when the suffering is unbearable, we remind ourselves someday this will be a distant memory. I'm going to pray that for you now. Father, Lord, across this room, You are gentle with us where our suffering seems unbearable, where it feels inescapable, where it feels unending. And God, we would just pray today that you would strengthen our faith. Because God, we're in the prison camp. We're in the birth pains. We know we're your children, but we also know that this isn't home and we know we're heirs, but our inheritance almost seems impossible, God. Will you strengthen our faith that we would hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess? God, dig our roots deep. Make us strong believers. Give us a strong faith in our suffering that we would know and that we would truly believe that the temporary sufferings of this life will be eclipsed by the eternal glory that we'll have with you in your presence. Strengthen our faith in that today.